I do see this close alignment between the insights that we're getting from cognitive neuroscience and Buddhism to the extent that things are not necessarily the way they seem. There is an impermanence to our experiences. There's an impermanence to the self. And recognizing that impermanence does open a space for change. Welcome to Mind and Life. I'm Wendy Hasenkamp. This week, I'm speaking with Anil Seth. Anil is a cognitive scientist who studies how consciousness works. As you'll hear, he started his career being interested in how we perceive the world around us. But that line of research has taken him far beyond the realm of basic perception, touching on the nature of our emotions, our sense of self, and even the question of free will. I caught up with Anil at last year's Mind and Life Summer Research Institute. This is a really unique event. It's a week-long gathering held each June in upstate New York, part academic conference, part meditation retreat. There's about 150 participants, and we all stay together at the Garrison Institute overlooking the Hudson River. And as part of the contemplative aspect of that program, portions of the event are held in silence. And you'll hear us reference that dynamic at one point in the conversation. The perspective that Anel's research has helped advance centers on the idea that our brains, instead of merely sensing the world and responding to it, are also very much involved in prediction and inference. And that has some surprising implications for pretty much all of our subjective experience. In our conversation, we discuss these views of the brain and mind, how they impact our sense of self and how we relate to others, possibilities for change the overlap of these ideas with some key concepts in Buddhist theory. And we also touch on the central role of the body in all these processes and how that relates to our experience of emotion. If you're interested in learning more about Anil's work, we've linked to some additional resources in the show notes for this episode, including his TED Talk, which has been viewed over 9 million times. So I really hope you enjoy this conversation. It's my pleasure to bring you Anil Seth. Okay, I'm here with Anil Seth. Thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. Thank you. I would love to begin just hearing a little bit about the roots of your interest in consciousness and how we perceive the world. I think like many people, uh, I've been interested in these big questions like consciousness for as long as I can remember. I remember arguing with my friends in the pub in, in England or before pub, you know, while at school. And it's just been one of those animating questions. And... For some reason and somehow, I've just been fortunate enough to still be allowed to be interested in it and, and work on it for a career. At the time I was a student in the mid-90s, it wasn't really an obvious thing that you could, you could embark on a, on a scientific research career to study. It was a topic in philosophy, maybe a topic in religious studies even, and a fringe topic in psychology yeah. uh, and neuroscience at best. But it still seemed to me the most interesting phenomenon. Mm -hmm. uh, how does it happen that we have conscious experiences, that there is something it is like to be me or to be you or to be any, any conscious creature? There was no particular good answer. And I remember thinking to start with that maybe physics is the right way mm. to understand this. It's a, big, it's a big mystery. It's a big gap in the whole structure of our understanding of, of nature. Mm -hmm. And so I started out studying physics. Oh, wow. Uh, and 
after some time, I mean, I, I, a, I kind of reached my limit at the ability to solve difficult <laughs> equations, but also it just became evident to me that, that actually there are real opportunities in studying psychology and neuroscience to address this question. Uh-huh. And some of the explanations of consciousness that were coming up from the physics direction were not making any sense. So uh-huh. the, these were sort of explanations like, well, consciousness is mysterious and quantum mechanics is mysterious, so they have to be linked. And, uh-huh. and, and this was kind of dissatisfying, to, to put it mildly. It was really yeah. rather off-putting. Yeah. Um, so it was with some relief that I kind of transitioned into psychology and neuroscience. And then things changed, I think, very generally uh, across the landscape of the brain and cognitive sciences and consciousness became, it's not exactly the most uh, legitimate and well-established <laughs> branch, but but you can get, you can teach it, you can research uh-huh. it, and most of all, you can occasionally even get grant funding to study it. So basically, that that's what I did. I think one important step I wanted to mention was uh, I did my postdoc in the United States in San Diego, and that was in the early 2000s. And, and at that time, it was still pretty uncommon. So Coming to the States was a big transitional moment for me. My boss was the Gerald Edelman, who was one of these figures. He'd won the Nobel Prize. Yeah. So he was allowed to study consciousness. Right. Francis Crick was just down the road. So San Diego at that time was wonderful. It was wonderful in many ways, but it was one of the few places where consciousness was properly on the menu. Stayed there six years and then went back to Sussex yeah. University, where I, where I am now still, and set up a, a group there. Yeah. So you described the brain as a predictive machine. Can you say more about that? Yeah, there's so many metaphors that people bring to bear when they try to understand the brain. I mean, it's an enormously complex object. It defies any kind of intuition. It's 90-odd billion neurons, a thousand times more connections. We don't know the fine wiring diagram of the brain. Uh, We just know it's important for a a lot of things. People have always reached for kind of dominant technology as, as the metaphor, a system of complex plumbing, uh, mm. a computer, or more recently, maybe the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always found the, the computer metaphor a bit off-putting, a bit misleading. Uh, it de-emphasizes consciousness, it de-emphasizes the role of the body, and the brain just is not a computer. Mm-hmm. I mean, computers you can use to simulate all, all kinds of things, but the brain isn't a computer. The way... I started to think about it, and certainly was not my original idea. It's, it's as I later realized, it's built on a very long tradition in philosophy mm-hmm. and then in psychology. Is to think from a starting point more of what is the problem that the brain is trying to solve. Mm. Take a, a functional perspective mm-hmm. on it, and if we start with perception, so one of the main jobs of the brain is to perceive both the body and and the world, so that Uh, the body can act, the organism can act within the world. And the problem of perception, it's tempting to think, and a lot of classical models of perception think of it as this kind of bottom-up process where sensory data comes in through the senses and is then read out by Mm -hmm. the self, which sits somewhere inside the skull. But that's a pretty unsatisfying view because... The, the world that we perceive is only indirectly related to what, if anything, is actually out there hmm. in the world. I mean, there are no colors actually out there in the world. Colors are something that's constructed by the brain. So I started to think, you know, there was a, a literature already on, on perception as a 
predictive acts. And I don't mean predicting the future. I mean mm -hmm. prediction in the sense of of making a best guess about what caused sensory inputs. So prediction in this sense is more like filling in missing data or or making an inference. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, we get all this sensory data, but it doesn't come with labels it, about where it's from or even what kind of sensory data it is. But we end up perceiving this world full of structured objects with particular properties. So the idea is that perception really depends on these top-down predictions that the brain is always bringing to bear to give shape and form to the sensory data that, that comes in. Now, this idea goes way back to Plato even hmm. and the shadows on the mm -hmm. cave and people thinking those are, are real. And then there's the Arabian scholar in about the 11th century who started talking about perception as inference. And then in the 19th century, the German scientist Hermann von Helmholtz was the first to really articulate this idea of perception as, as inference. And now this is an idea with, with quite substantial momentum. Uh, people call it predictive coding, predictive right. processing, the Bayesian brain. But the shared idea is that perceptual content, what we perceive, isn't a, a readout of sensory data. It's a, it's a top-down best guess, mm -hmm. a projection, a hypothesis, uh, a prediction about the causes of sensory signals. And that's what we perceive. It's the brain's best guess of what's out there. It's interesting that this idea has been around for so long, in fact, in different ways. It seems really to be taking off now in, in cognitive science um, in a way that I think maybe it hasn't held sway before. Do you have a sense of why now people seem to be jumping on board with this idea? It's always hard to see why ideas gain a certain resonance at, at a particular time. I mean, part of it, I think, is that the various disciplines that that constitute cognitive neuroscience have reached a stage where these ideas seem sensible. Mm -hmm. So we can, for instance, you know, we can start to look at direction of information flow in, in the brain. Mm -hmm. We're getting a little bit tired of, of cognitive neuroscience that just says it's this area or that area right. that's responsible for this process or that process. Yeah. I think people want to know more about, well, you know, what are the mechanisms? What's the circuitry? What, how does it work, not just where is it? Yeah. And also, I think there's been an increasing interest in the phenomenology of this. So if we look at mm. things like um, uh, psychosis or other forms of hallucination, it makes sense to think of these phenomena in terms of predictions, perceptual predictions that are not restrained by the sensory data, that overwhelm mm -hmm. the sensory data uh, in, in some measurable way. And so I think progress can be made. In fact, there's a phrase which, which I've used quite a lot. I mean, I didn't make this phrase up at all. I heard it from uh, one of my mentors, Chris Frith in London. Uh, he describes perception as a controlled hallucination. Yeah. So can that, you describe that? Well, I think it's just this idea that, that I mean, we typically think of hallucination as a, a false perception. When you see something that nobody else next to you sees, we call hallucination. Right. And the assumption is that it's a totally different category for, from normal perception which is revealing the world as it is, ideally. <laughs> right. And, but I think this phrase picks uh, out a continuity between normal perception and hallucination. They, they both result in us perceiving something, mm -hmm. and they both depend on this interplay, this dance between the brain's predictions about what's there and sensory data 
which is giving feedback about these predictions, mm -hmm. prediction errors, we'd call them right. computationally. And when people have hallucinations, what's happening or, or the idea, what's happening is that the prediction errors, the sensory data aren't updating the predictions in a way that, that happens for the rest of us. Mm -hmm. So people's perceptual content becomes unmoored from the causes in the world and people report perceiving things that, that other people don't. So hallucination is, if you like, a kind of uncontrolled perception and then by the same token, perception is, is a controlled hallucination. Mm -hmm. And it's controlled not by the individual. I'm not saying like, I am in control of my perceptions or my hallucinations. So I, right. as, as like me, Anil Seth, perceive, <laughs> decide to perceive things as they are. No, the control is coming from from the sensory data. So my perceptual predictions are being controlled, being reined in by prediction errors that, that are reported from my eyes, my ears, uh, my nose, my other senses. Yeah. So what enables the brain or the mind to generate these predictions? Like where are they coming from? That's where I think a lot of work needs to uh -huh. be done. It's, it's, an, it's a nice idea, but one of the, the challenges is there's it fits with a lot of evidence, but there's very little direct yeah. evidence that discriminates this idea for, from other ideas. Hmm. Like to, to actually characterize, let's say, a visual sensory input as a prediction error, as reporting the difference between what the brain is expecting and getting, mm -hmm. it's hard to come by that kind of evidence. So there's a, a big program of research that, that needs to be done in my lab. We're, we're doing some of that to try to lock down the what's happening in the brain when predictions are being made and, mm -hmm. and being updated. Um, where do they come from in the first place? That, that's another interesting question. Mm -hmm. And again, it's a, it's, it's a slightly dissatisfying answer because there's going to be, it's, it's a combination of factors. Mm -hmm. right? So you can imagine that certain perceptual predictions, we can call them, another word for them would be priors. So prior beliefs about the way the world is. And these aren't beliefs you're necessarily aware of having. It could be a belief your visual system has that light generally comes from above. Now, this could be a belief encoded in your visual system through evolution, through development. It's just baked in there. Mm -hmm. Pretty much anything that we think brains do, if you ask what gave rise to that, it's going to be a mixture of evolutionary factors, right. developmental factors, lifetime learning, yeah. and moment-to-moment -moment experience. So how do you see these ideas about um, the brain and the mind as uh, implications for how we think about ourselves? I think this is where things get really interesting. And this was where this line of thought took me in a, a direction I wasn't necessarily expecting to go. Um, and I'd started out mainly interested in perception of the world and how that happened. And in that view, the self is the, the thing that does the perceiving. Yeah. and then make some decisions and perform some actions. And so that, that's the sort of typical way we think about it, right? That mm -hmm. there's a world out there, we sense it, we read out perceptions in this outside-in direction, the self does the perceiving, and what we perceive is related to the world. Mm -hmm. If you think of perception as prediction, then it, it becomes natural, at least to me, to think that the self is not the thing that does the perceiving, the self is a perception. Mm. How, how do you get to that? I think you get to it by thinking, well, what do experiences of self consist in? And then you realize that experiences of self are just forms of perception. Mm -hmm. And there are many different forms of perception that constitute our experience of being a self. There's the experience, the perception of what in the world is my body uh, compared to 
things that aren't part of my body. There's the experience of having a first-person perspective on the world. There are experiences of intending to do things, of, of what you know, typically or colloquially is called free will mm -hmm. experiences. Then there, there are experiences of memories, of a sense of personal identity that extends over time. And all of these aspects of self, I think, can be described as, as perceptions. And we have known for, for a long time from both case studies in neurology and experiments that these different aspects of self can uh, fragment. Mm -hmm. People can lose their autobiographical memory. Right. Part of their self is altered, but much of it remains. People's experience of what, what is their body or what is not their body can be altered in, in disease or in, or in the lab, which shows that you know, that part of ourself is also constructed on the fly. It's not to be taken for granted. I mean, the temptation is just to take the self for granted that I perceive myself this way and, and therefore right. there's nothing to explain. But I think there's a lot to explain. Mm -hmm. And it's particularly relevant when we think about psychiatric conditions, which can often be well described as altered perception of self. And if we can start to understand how we perceive the self according to the same principles that we perceive the world, gives us a view into well, what, what does it mean to be a self, but it yeah. also gives us an avenue into thinking about how to understand psychiatric conditions, unusual aberrant perceptions, yeah. um, and so on. And how about implications then for changing our perceptions, our belief, our, our sense of self even? How does this, does this view point to ways of um, creating change? I think it opens a space for it. I mean, one, one thing about change, which I've, which I've been recently thinking about, which I find potentially fascinating, is, again, just taking some parallels from what we know about how perception works in the world and then seeing if that gives any insight into how we perceive being a self. So there's this phenomenon of change blindness, mm. which has been well studied in psychology. Mm -hmm. One expression of change blindness is if a scene changes very slowly, we typically don't perceive the change. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like the background color of a screen can change very slowly. And if somebody's focusing on something else, they, they might not notice that half their visual field has, uh, or at least the input has changed color. There's an interesting yeah. question there. What do they perceive? Is it that they perceive what they started out with? or has their perception changed, but they haven't noticed the change. I think it's the latter. These experiments show that the change of your perception is not the same thing as perception of change. Right. Change itself is something you perceive, like you perceive color, like you perceive um, sound, like you perceive shape. And then if you think about how that applies to the self, one of the characteristics of how people experience being a self, unless they're in some sort of you know, uh, psychological crisis mm -hmm. is as stable. Right. You know, we perceive ourselves as unchanging over time, right. or rather we don't perceive ourselves as changing. So I think we have a kind of self-change blindness, Interesting. which is quite adaptive. It's quite useful for us to perceive ourselves as not changing because it gives us a stable anchor mm -hmm. for our psychological identity. In fact, we'll, we'll come to you later probably, but the point of perceiving things can often be to regulate or control them. Uh -huh. And so I think we perceive ourselves the way we do in order to maintain ourselves as stable physiological entities. And so that itself entails that we perceive ourselves as more stable over time than we actually are. Because if you right. think about it, we are, I mean, I'm not the same person I was 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Right. Or will or be. Or even yesterday. Or even <laughs> yesterday. But I don't ever notice that 
that change. Right. And I think I'm systematically wired to not notice the change in myself. And of right. course, that can break down in certain situations. And that's, right. that's sort of one way into how mm -hmm. these ideas can shed uh, interesting angles on um, psychiatric conditions, mental illness, or other forms of... of I'm focusing on those because they're more distressing, but, right. but any change in one's conscious experience, which would be described as unusual, I think, can, can be addressed right. uh, this way. So a couple of things coming up for me there. What you, The way you described it as the normal mode of operation is to perceive ourselves as very stable and unchanging over time makes me think of foundational principles in Buddhism that suggest that that very tendency is, a, first of all, an illusion which aligns exactly with, uh, with your work, but also one of the foundational sources of all of our suffering <laughs> um, because we don't perceive the reality of the kind of the ways that we change and the ways that reality is interdependent on all the contextual factors and things that play in. Have you gone into Buddhist theory at all as it relates to your work? I mean, I've always been interested in mm -hmm. it. And I, I admit that it's not something I've studied explicitly yeah. much um you know, I, I read some of the stuff when i was when i was young and, and i've always been fascinated by the apparent overlap mm -hmm. and uh, between at least my limited understanding of, of buddhist doctrine yeah. and buddhist philosophy and buddhist practice and what modern neuroscience yeah. is, is teaching us right. and i think you, you pick up a couple of the points that stood out to me as well yeah. You know, the idea of of perception being a construction, uh, so things are, we we tend to experience the, our perception as being real. You know, that that's why it's so counterintuitive to think of it as a best guess or as a or as a top down prediction. Because mm -hmm. I really experienced the table as being red. Yeah. yeah, and perception has to work that way. Because if it didn't, I would be constantly wasting time thinking, "Is it really red?" You know, it <laughs> right. it, it works by giving me the appearance of reality. And in the same way, my experience of a stable self works mm -hmm. because it gives me this experience that the self really is stable. And that's often useful. Yeah. But of course, it's also, I think, as you just explained, it's the root of a lot of problems and, and potential suffering too. Right. So I do see this, this close alignment between the insights that we're getting from cognitive neuroscience and Buddhism to the extent that things are not necessarily the way they seem. Things can change. There is an impermanence to our experiences, to, to the world. There's an impermanence to the self. Right. And recognizing that impermanence, whether it's in a in sort of first-person confrontation with your own experience through meditation or whether it's through scientific insights, mm -hmm. which I think gets you to a similar place but by a different direction. Mm -hmm. Not exactly the same place. I wouldn't, I'd never claim that. But that does open a space for change. I mean, once you, it's the first step, I think. Once you realize that your perception is, is, is a construction, once you realize that the self can change and does change, that at least gives you the potential for allowing change to happen and for mm -hmm. inviting ways to make the changes or to enable or to permit other factors to allow you to change. So I could imagine on one side, these ideas can be quite liberating and can open up a lot of space, like you were just saying, for possibility. On the other hand, I could also see cases where it could feel quite destabilizing, like, you know, the world is not as it appears, 
myself isn't either. Um, what does all that mean about reality? Uh, so have you yourself dealt with some of those struggles or have people given you pushback or issues as you talk about these ideas? A bit of both. I think these thoughts about perception have, have helped me, if anything. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I've had my own sort of share of, of distressing mental experiences. I've had you know, episodes of depression mm -hmm. over the last 10 years or so. Not too bad, but not pleasant. Mm -hmm. you know, really unpleasant, these things are. Um, I think during those times, it has helped to the extent that I've been able to focus on some of these ideas of perception as construction and try, trying to recognize that, you know, well, what's going on in my brain and body mm -hmm. to deliver this perception? Now, this, in a way, it's, it's like impromptu meditation. Uh -huh. Instead of getting caught up in the thought, noticing it. But my sort of strategy for noticing it is to sort of think about how does that happen? You know, right, what's going right. on in my brain? But it, it's the same, yeah. strikes me the same process. You're just putting a little distance between the experience and your perspective on it. Right. So I think it's been very helpful personally for me. Um, it's not a magic bullet or anything, sure. right? I mean, it's, um, I wouldn't recommend it as a replacement mm -hmm. for, for therapy. Um, how it's been, how these ideas impact other people is... I think there is a lot of individual variance about mm -hmm. that. I think most people find them very positive ways of thinking. Yeah. But yeah. of course, it all depends on context and set and setting, who, mm -hmm. this, who you are and what situation you're in when you start to think about things this way. I had, a, I, I, this is a TED talk a couple of years ago, and of course then you get a, a massive exposure compared right. to pretty much anything else. And, and so you will get a variety of people who have been, um, you know, who haven't, benefited uh -huh. or not immediately anyway right. part of the problem was that i think the title given to the talk was you hallucinate your conscious reality right. now <laughs> it's very famous talk. It, it, it's it's not and of course the title is the only thing you don't get oh to you choose. didn't get to no, choose that you know, oh, you know, in, in any kind worst. of media stuff right you right. never choose your own right. headline right so i didn't i oh. didn't choose that um and <laughs> i don't it's a, it's a catchy title yeah but it, there's one way in which it can be misinterpreted which is this idea that nothing is real Right, and that, exactly. that it's all up for grabs. Yeah, and that, and so you know, sometimes I, you know, probably once a week I get an email from somebody <laughs> saying like, if you think nothing is real, go and jump in front of a train right. and see how that works out. And it's like, no, that's not what I'm saying. Trains uh -huh. exist, whether you know you're looking at them or not. It's uh -huh. the way in which a train appears to you in your conscious perception that's right. a construction. I mean, Locke, the philosopher goes back to this, where there's a distinction between things that exist independently of our observation and, and things that don't. Yeah. Things have solidity independently of whether we look at them or not. Things right. like money and color you know, are different kinds of things. They, yeah. they don't have an independent existence. So I'm not saying that everything is up, up for grabs. And this is the key idea about controlled hallucinations, mm. that most of the time our perceptual systems are engaged in this dance between perceptual predictions and sensory signals. But this, this doesn't mean that an ideal perceptual system would actually reveal things as they are. I think there are two reasons for this. First is the level at which objective reality is manifest, whether it's like quantum foam or I don't know what's out there. <laughs> Who knows? Clouds of probability. Do. Who knows? Um, there's no, there's no, way, no reason we should expect our perceptual systems to ultimately have access to that objective right. reality. And Kant talks about this as the noumenon, you know, this, uh, this objective reality forever hidden behind uh -huh. a sensory veil. So there's that sense. 
And there's another sense in which why would evolution have delivered us a perceptual system that's maximally accurate? In a sense, you know, evolution cares about our survival, our reproduction, and, and it's going to shape our perceptual systems with that as the main criteria. So, you know, colors, for instance, they're not an accurate representation of how things are. Colors are an invention of the brain mm. that, that help us in the service of our behavior. Um, so I think there are and probably many examples of this in psychology. We, you know, we call these like positive biases and things like that, mm-hmm. um, where it's better for us to almost deliberately, well, our brain is doing this deliberately, misperceive things. Because mm-hmm. it's more functional for our it's survival. More functional. It's more functional. So back to this thing about self. If we misperceive ourselves as being more stable than we actually are, mm-hmm. then we're going to regulate ourselves towards that stability almost like a self-fulfilling belief right but at the level of basic mechanisms of perception rather than you know positive thinking yeah okay can you talk a little more about the importance of regulation of the body in in this whole processes yeah so this is where i think i started to to put things together a, a bit more because the starting point for these ideas was yes perception of the world outside is is a is a prediction is a process of predictive inference then that applies to the self too. So the way I experience the self is a process of prediction about the causes of self-related sensory signals. And then the next step was to think, well, what's perception for in both of these cases? And why, why is it that I perceive being a self in a very phenomenologically different way than I perceive the world around me? Like the world around me, especially through the vision, is a, you know, there's a objects in Mm -hmm. a structured space with spaces between them but i don't perceive the interior of my body this way i don't perceive my internal organs in their spatial configurations with colors or shapes i I perceive this basic sense of being an embodied creature and then i might have moods and emotions and amorphous senses of agency and will that don't have spatial locations or shapes. Right, Why it's all is very that? vague. Yeah, yeah, it becomes vague in that sense, but specific in another sense. Yeah. You know, a, a, a very strong emotion is a very yes. specific feeling, right. and just not one that's specific in the sense of of, uh, of color. I mean, right. metaphorically, yeah, you can, yeah. You know, you <laughs> yeah. anger is red and so on, and yeah. but, but it's not red in the same way that a red thing is red. Right. So I started to think then, well, another way to think about perception is is for control. And then there's a whole nother literature, a whole different literature from 20th century cybernetics. And this one of the early progenitors of, of AI that, that got lost a little bit, um, but that talked about the importance of feedback for control and the importance of having predictive models for control. And this could be as simple as something like controlling a, a, you know, a guided missile or something, you know, give it feedback or a thermostat in a central heating mm-hmm. system. If you want to control something, it really helps to be able to have a predictive model of what it is you're controlling, because then you can even deploy anticipatory control. You can prevent something from deviating even before it has deviated. Right. And if you think about perception of the body, ultimately, you want to keep the body alive. So there are things like blood pressure, heart rate, heart rate variability, um, blood salinity. There are lots of physiological variables that have to mm-hmm. maintain themselves within pretty tight ranges for you to stay alive. Right. That's what perception of the body is for. It's not for figuring out what's there. It's for controlling and regulating mm-hmm. the internal milieu, as physiologists call yeah. it, the, you know, the bodily state. And so that's why I think that perception of the body, predictive perception of the body, 
starts with physiological regulation. That's why when we experience the body, we don't experience objects with shapes. We, ha we experience how well is this physiological regulation of the body going? Is it mm. going well or is it going badly? Is it likely to go well or badly in, in the future? And for me, this was the sort of final step in a series of inversions. You know, we, we start out by thinking, okay, the, what I perceive the world as it is, and it comes in. Then, then the self does the perceiving. So those are the first uh -huh. two. No, we, we don't perceive the world as it is. It's a construction, and the self is itself a perception. Uh -huh. And the third thing is that actually all of this, all the mechanisms of perception, whether they're of the self or of the world, they all stem from a basic imperative to keep the body alive. Right. So uh, the way in which we perceive the outside world is built through evolution, through development, on mechanisms that are shaped by the imperative to regulate the body. And for me, this highlighted a, another connection with the contemplative tradition, which is this connection between mind and life. Mm -hmm. And people have argued about this forever in philosophy. You know, is it, what's the connection between mind and life? Thinking of the brain as a computer leads you to divorce the two. The key thing about a computer is it's substrate independent. Right. You can make a computer out of empty Coke cans and pieces of string if you want. But this way of thinking just revealed uh, this really strong connection between life and mind. Um, I'm not saying that only living things can have minds. I don't know. But what, I, what it does suggest to me is the, the, the shape of our minds or the minds of any living creature can only be understood in light of their being alive. And this actually joined up with one of my mentors and uh, inspirations, Carl Friston, who also started uh, from a position like this. Instead of starting from the position of how we uh, perceive the world around us, like what does it take for a system to persist over time and be a system? And from that, he derived mathematically all the mechanisms of predictive processing and wow. predictive coding, which I found very, very satisfying. Yeah. Um, just because it worked from, you can go from either direction. You can, you can think, well, how do we perceive the world and, and then end up uh, figuring out what perception of the body is all about and for. Or you can start from, well, what does it take for a system to persist over time and to regulate itself mm -hmm. against perturbations and fluctuations and then go all the way out? Right. So I'm um, thinking of what you said about mind and relationship to life. I was going to say it sounds like then you wouldn't be on board with anything in the panpsychism world where consciousness could be a property of of matter in some ways but but you made a distinction there so you still allowing space for that or do you feel like um consciousness is bound up in life living systems um the honest answer is I don't know what kind of thing could be conscious right I don't find any of the available positions you know, completely satisfying mm -hmm. on this. And I find strong assumptions about them off-putting. Mm -hmm. So if people, for instance, just assume that, that computers can be conscious, it's just a matter of having them sophisticated and powerful, I think that's a misled assumption based on the idea that consciousness is closely associated with, it, with intelligence. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, I think that, that's just wrong and that's part of our arrogance as a species. But that's a popular position in philosophy, functionalism. You know, it doesn't matter what the thing is made mm -hmm. out of. It's, uh, it just matters what it does. Mm -hmm. um, it's not entirely the same as computational theory of consciousness, but it's related. And then you have panpsychism, which is this idea that, that consciousness is in some sense, and it depends on the variety of panpsychism that mm -hmm. you, you choose, everywhere. 
You know, it could be a variety of panpsychism where you say consciousness is a fundamental property of the universe, much like mass, energy, or, or, or charge. Mm -hmm. Could be. I, I'm not sure what the utility of, of thinking that is, though, because even people who strongly believe that don't claim that you know there is something it is like to be an electron in, in anything like the sense that right. there is something it is like to be you or me. Right. So what testable proposition does it give you and, and what problem does it resolve? It's a very coherent philosophical position. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I was having a dialogue with a philosopher called Phil, Philip Goff, who's mm -hmm. written a, a good book about this. And I like to see it sensibly articulated because it's, it's easy to, to, to make fun of an idea like panpsychism right. and say, yeah, you just think consciousness is spread everywhere like some jam all over the universe. And, and some people have said things like that. Uh -huh. uh, but the sophisticated panpsychist would not say anything like that. Right. And then you have theories like Giulio Tononi's integrated information theory of consciousness, very sophisticated theory of consciousness. Mm -hmm. And it's what I would say semi-panpsychist. You know, mm -hmm. it, it's saying that anything can be conscious if it has the appropriate internal structure, but not everything is conscious because not everything does have that mm -hmm. appropriate internal structure. Right. So from a theory like that, uh, the right kind of computer could be conscious, but not in virtue of being a computer. Right. Um, and not everything living might. I mean, there, are, there are certain right. systems that you can say, well, that's doing something, but it's not, mm -hmm. it's not conscious. The problem with panpsychism, I find, is that I, I guess I've been, I've been learning about myself that I'm attracted to pragmatism in science and the philosophy of science. And unless it gives me something to do, and it doesn't have to be a particular experiment, it can be a line of thought to follow that leads to a a new intuition about why things are the way they are, then I just get a bit bored. So to come back to what you were saying about bodily regulation, is there a way that that uh, links in with our experience of emotion? There is indeed, I think, a very close uh, relationship between emotion and these ideas of predictive regulation of the cell. In fact, that was the first, uh, I guess, contribution that, that I published in this area that I thought, oh, no, that, that makes sense. Um, and it was just this idea that, okay, if our perception of the outside world is uh, this process of prediction, this Bayesian best guessing, this controlled hallucination, mm -hmm. well, then the same should apply to our sense of the body from within. And at Sussex, I learned a lot from my colleague, Hugo Critchley, who's a professor of psychiatry there, but a, a leading expert on interoception. All the sensory data coming from deep within the body, reporting things like blood pressure levels and heartbeat, all these things. So helping with this regulation. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and so it occurred to me, well, yeah, why not apply the same principles to interoception? Mm -hmm. So our perception of interoceptive signals is, again, a, a kind of Bayesian best guess, mm -hmm. controlled hallucination, but one that's geared towards regulation and control. Mm -hmm. And then the question is, well, what does, what does the relevant best guess feel like in terms of its perceptual content? And the obvious thing was that, well, it's an, that's what an emotion is, right? An emotion mm -hmm. is a, the best guess of the causes of interoceptive mm -hmm. sensory signals. And it's, it's a bit more sophisticated than that. And then you think, well, it's actually it's the perception of how well regulation of those interoceptor signals is going. Uh, but, but just to put it most simply, when we have an emotion, what that is, it is, a, is a best guess of what caused the current barrage of signals from within the body. And this is just another restatement of a very old idea in the psychology of emotion, which is back to William James and Carl Langer, that, that uh, emotions are perceptions of changes in bodily state.
Mm -hmm. And so all I was really doing there is just re-articulating that insight in the modern language of, of predictive processing. And, you know, I, I should say, because I, I wrote about this, I think, in 2011 and then later, and uh, Lisa Barrett, who's a psychologist of emotion mm -hmm. here in the U.S., was having, I think, similar ideas around the same time. And we only recently met to talk oh, about wow. them a couple of years ago. But cool. it was, it was kind of nice to see that that convergent yeah. thinking. And she wrote with much more specificity and detail about the anatomy uh, than I was able to do. Uh, and I think, well, I, I'm more convinced having read her stuff now. <laughs> like, you know, yeah, it could actually work. Yeah. So it, I guess it's the same inversion that you're doing of, of um, our normal intuitions. I, I would imagine that many people would view emotions as something that's happening in the world and then they're reacting to that thing. It's a good question. Yeah. I actually don't know really what the, f we call it the folk idea of emotion uh -huh. is. You know, I think that would be quite cool to, to figure out, you know, what do people actually, if you ask them generally, right. what do people think emotions are? I think there's probably quite a wide diversity of them, yeah. but I think it would be unlikely that most people would naturally think that emotions are predictive perceptions of Right. <laughs> physiological, regulatory, relevant changes in bodily state. Yeah, I think that would not probably come up right. as people's number one choice <laughs> of what an emotion actually is. Right. How does your work and your research on the mind and these controlled hallucinations and predictions make you think about the idea of free will? It seems like it could be viewed as a quite deterministic system. And so how does that land for you? Free will, we always yeah. have to come <laughs> it to free will. It always ends up free will. We always end up there. Um, yeah, it's a very challenging and frustrating thing to think about, I think, but yeah. also very important because for a lot of people, if you start to talk to them about where is the essence of, of, of themselves, mm -hmm. what's really the most important thing about their, who they are, you can tell them that their perception of their body can be changed you know, through give them a rubber hand or whatever. It's mm -hmm. okay. Um, you can have an out-of-body experience. It's okay too. Uh, but if you start to say, well, free will also has a scientific explanation mm -hmm. and it's not some sort of ability to autonomously determine your actions free from any prior cause, people get a bit worried it seems to be that's an idea that people are very reluctant to, to let go of but right. what are they actually letting go of and the more i think about free will i start thinking actually less about free will as a problem itself but mm. more about why is it such a sticky problem mm. why do people find it uh so uh difficult to relinquish the impression that they are an uncaused cause. Right. Because if you look in the dictionary about what, what, how free will is defined, on the one hand, it's defined as a voluntary action or decision, mm -hmm. uh, which is kind of almost trivial, but true. Mm -hmm. uh, and on the other definition that's usually provided, it's, it's as a, something that happens without prior cause, a mysterious human huh. ability to, to make things happen that are not previously caused, huh. which picks out what, people's intuitions are often like, you know, I, I did this, I didn't have right. to do this, I could have done something else, right. I did it of my own free will. Yeah. There was no prior cause apart from me. Right. But that, you know, if, if you take that at face value, it's, it's just, it's what I call spooky free will. It's completely <laughs> inconsistent with everything 
we know from physics. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't even matter whether you buy into determinism or not. I mean, this is a big red herring as far as I'm okay. concerned. Because sprinkling a little bit of chance doesn't give you the autonomy that people feel that they have when they express their free will. Right. Random behavior is not the expression of free will. Right. So it's just, a, I think it's a, it's a total red herring. You know, I think philosophically, I'm usually described as a compatibilist. I can think of free will in a, in a way that's compatible with the universe being deterministic. But mm -hmm. actually, I don't care whether the, the universe okay. is deterministic so that's or not. not the I just don't think, it's, I don't think it's actually relevant. Yeah. Um, I just go back to try to apply the same principles, ways of thinking that started with this idea of how do we perceive the world? Because the experience of free will is another perception. I just have the content of this perception is that I, I performed an action I didn't have to perform and mm -hmm. I could have done otherwise. That's the content of that perception in the same way that the content of a visual perception has things like colors, shapes, mm -hmm. and other stuff in it. Uh, and that I think is, is the key actually. That's the reason people get so wound up about free will because the content of the perception of free will is precisely that the experience does cause the action. Exactly. That is the content of, the ex of a perception of free will. Right. Whereas the perception of something else, like a table or a chair or, or, or an arm or a leg, doesn't contain that kind of metaphysically problematic step. Like when I perceive something is being red, I'm not perceiving that my experience of redness is actually causing anything to happen. Right. Yeah. So it's easier to accept that, 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 um, you know, that, yeah, that's a construction of the brain, it's a perception. Um, and regardless of the actual relationship between consciousness and matter, you know, I can still tell a story about why I perceive the world the way I perceive it in, in my conscious experience. But the content of an experience of free will doesn't easily allow you to do that because it is precisely that my experience is having a causal role and it could have been otherwise. That's the problem, but that's also the secret, right? Because if I think that's, all right, so why am I perceiving things that way? What is it about what's happening in an expression of a voluntary action that I experience as free will? Why do I experience it that way? Well, it's not that it could have been otherwise, Given the state of the universe at the time, take it, you know, sprinkle mm -hmm. a bit of random noise, whatever you want, you know, that doesn't help. I, I, it could not have been otherwise. Mm -hmm. I did what I did, could not have done otherwise. But perhaps next time a similar situation comes around, maybe I will do something different because the universe right. won't the be in exactly be the same state. You know, if you replay the tape, you'll get the same thing. But everything we do, everything that happens changes the brain. Right. So I think, and this is a bit aligned with, with uh, Patrick Haggard in, in London, I think that when we have an experience of free will, it's divided into two parts. There's an experience of intention, mm -hmm. the urge to do something, and agency, mm -hmm. the experience that I did that. Mm -hmm. I push a button, a light came on, I did that. Uh, we have these experiences when the brain makes an inference that the cause of an action came from within. From the self? From the self, yeah. From, the in, from somehow, not from any external imposition. I wasn't coerced to, I wasn't hypnotized to, I wasn't forced to, I wasn't brain stimulated to. We, the brain can make an inference about well, what were the causes of, of a particular action. And if the, that inference is that, well, the actions, the causal chain that, re, that resulted in that action was relatively internal, and was aligned with beliefs and desires mm -hmm. of the self, then uh, I will experience that action as, as freely willed. And part of the phenomenology of that is that I could have done otherwise, mm -hmm. because to have that experience, if the causes are relatively internal, then there is a sense in which the next time 
you might do otherwise because you're not being so constrained by by the external mm-hmm. situation. So again, it's just a case of of starting with the parallel, starting with the idea like, what happens if I think of an experience of free will in the same way that I think of an experience of color? Right. And then just following the thread from there. And that's, then I think you can, you can navigate around these red herrings of determinism. And also people, again, I think, want free will to be a particular way because they feel that if they think of it a different way, either they'll dissolve into some psychological puddle on the floor, mm-hmm. which is not going to happen, um, or that somehow all our moral and ethical frameworks will be up for grabs and will be anarchy, mm-hmm. which also won't happen. Yeah. So if I'm understanding you correctly, then you're suggesting that the experience of agency and free will and choice is yet another construction in the case of any quote-unquote voluntary action. Is that what you mean? That's right. I think, yeah, if you, this is basically following me all the way down the rabbit hole. I think yeah. everything okay. is a perception. Yeah. Everything that we experience can be understood as a perception of one yeah. sort or another. And that applies to colors, shapes, tables, chairs, cats, coffee cups, bodies, brains, free will, yeah. too. So there is a sense in which it's an illusion. Mm-hmm. The sense in which it really is an illusion is this spooky sense, mm-hmm. this idea that there's some soul force that is still you know, unconstrained by mm-hmm. material reality that can come in, swoop down, intervene, and change the course of physical events in some useful way. That's, mm-hmm. That just doesn't make any sense to me. Things can't be that way unless you go back to dualism and say, yeah, there's a soul and it's not, mm-hmm. yeah, and it, it interacts so, with the brain through the pineal gland or something like that. But if you're not a dualist, uh, then it really doesn't make sense to think that way. And so we have to come up with another way of thinking that does justice to the phenomenology of free will, to the function of voluntary behavior. And I think, uh, you know, this is this is a way that does it. And it's a, it's a combination of, of views from, from different, uh, different people, I think. Yeah. I'm still trying to figure it out I for myself. I'm, you know, I'm writing this book at the moment. And, and so far, it's been just a kind of trawl through the ideas we've been discussing. Uh-huh. And then, of course, I also left the free will chapter to the end. <laughs> and I've tried to write it three times already now. Figure and it's like, I have to try and get this story straight uh, because it, it's sort of, yeah, it, it is slippery. We, we do have such strong intuitions. Yeah that free will has a kind of reality about it that is somehow deeper than, than let's say, yeah. color. Right. But I just don't think, in the end, that, that that stands up. That makes a lot of sense. I think when I go through these gyrations around trying to figure out free will questions, yeah, I'm inclined to think that it doesn't exist, or as you say, it's a construction, which I think is a great way of putting it, but it sure feels like we have it. Yeah, I, I don't think it's not that the experience of free will suddenly goes away when you realize or, or have a thought about that. It, you know, if, right, if, right, I'm, right. if I'm currently believing myself, the story that I'm telling myself yeah. about free will, it doesn't go away. And, you know, I'm still feeling voluntary actions. I still feel this, this sense of like, I could have done otherwise. You know, I, I could have had something else. Mm-hmm. We were talking earlier about what, what the effect of, of coming to these ideas scientifically mm-hmm. has for one's personal psychological life. And the effects are subtle. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it's the same. I still see colors. It's not that right. understanding more about the psychological basis and neural basis of color perception doesn't make you suddenly stop seeing colors. Right. I'm going to continue to feel free will. The hope is that, that as with all these other ways of thinking about self and world, that if I can understand free will for what it is and not this spooky soul stuff, 
then that will make me more at ease with my voluntary choices. Yeah. It seems like much in the way we were discussing how the way we construct our, our perceptions as well as the way we construct the self are very functional and very useful. Would you say it's also very useful to think that we have agency? Absolutely. <laughs> it, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's really helpful because if you take the brain's perspective on it, it's very useful for the brain to distinguish those things that happen that, it, that the brain could have not controlled, mm -hmm. had no control over. You know, somebody just drops a brick on your head, you know, that there's no point in experiencing agency right. over that. Right. And events for which the organism could have had some control. Yeah. You know, because we are complex pieces of flesh and blood. You know, we can do many things. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think experiences of, of agency clearly have a functional role for, in making that distinction so that the brain can pay attention and learn from those actions that were relatively internally caused from actions that were relatively externally caused. Yeah. And psychologically, we, we kind of notice it, it sort of helps to, to feel yeah, agency over, really over some things rather than, than other things. And of course, there's a, one thing I haven't thought much about is there's a big cultural dependency to this, mm. you know, to, to the extent that you know, we attribute agency sometimes extra personally. It's a, it's a relatively individualist Western thing to take mm -hmm. responsibility for everything that we do. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, God used to take some of that yeah. load off our shoulders, right? Right, right. And I appreciate your naming the particular stickiness of this issue and like why it's so challenging for people to let go of. And I wonder if it's also related to this self, you know, from Buddhism, the idea of clinging and a self and the idea of this stable, fixed identity over time. It's not necessarily that that itself is the problem, but it's the way we cling to it and then the behaviors and things that arise from that clinging. So it seems also maybe why we find the idea that free will is a bit of an illusion so challenging is, is similarly because it challenges, uh, again, that sense of self. Yeah, I think these lines of inquiry are, are revealing for, for the biases that we have about what is important about us. Mm -hmm. So where are they most stickiest for, for an individual or for yeah. a bunch of people? Um, so yeah, I think I've learned a lot about what's important to me as, as a self yeah. through thinking, well, how, how hard is this intuition for me yeah. to be challenged in this way? Right. So as you've talked about how these ideas have implications for our sense of self, I'm wondering about similar implications for the way we perceive of others, particularly in different groups, um, stereotypes and things like that, where we may be deploying predictions or having constructions about others. So how do you think this relates to possibilities for interacting with others? Yeah, I think this is a great question, and it's not something I've worked much on um, either on my own or in, in the lab, but it's one of those things being at a, at a meeting uh, in the Mind and Life Institute is really fascinating for this because this is a, a topic of continual discussion. And I think there are two relevant points here. The, f the first is that my perception of another's mental state is also, con I think, constructed by the same principles. Sure. I am always ma I'm making a best guess about your mental state. Mm -hmm. And it's being continually updated by the conversation that we're now mm -hmm. having. And so it's just a deeper inference that, that to get to somebody else's mental state, it's not just what light is being reflected from the surface of your face. And you know, I have to make mm -hmm. a series of further inferences. And my brain has to make further inferences about that. And of course, 
my inference about your mental state will partly depend on how I think you're perceiving my mental state. So there's a recursiveness which makes things even more mm-hmm. challenging. But ultimately, the 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 idea is the same, which of course means that I can now uh, open the possibility that my perception of your mental state is not the way it is, is not necessarily accurate yeah. to what it, whatever the normative criteria might be. Right. It's also a construction. Right. And that we're co-constructing mutual perceptions of our, each other's mental states to facilitate, in this case, a, a dialogue. So that's that's one idea, and that's just thinking of social perception through through the same lens. And of course, if we have people then who might come from different backgrounds, we can start to think, well, how would their priors influence how they perceive my mental state? And how right. does that sort of enter into this recursive cycle by which we infer yeah. uh, mental states? But there's this other aspect, I think, which is any interpersonal interaction is framed by the context in which it takes place. Mm-hmm. And we tend to assume, because we perceive things as real, that we're both experiencing the same right. set and setting. Um, you know, we're both in this in this room here, and I assume you see the table the same way I do. Mm-hmm. Probably you do, but probably not exactly yeah. the same. And it's because we we naturally experience the contents of our perception as being real. It becomes harder to appreciate that somebody else might not experience things exactly the same way, and of course they'll be experiencing things as real too. Right. And there's a trade-off here. I think on the one hand, we have to experience ourselves as inhabiting a shared perceptual reality it's a kind of ground rules for having a dialogue yeah you know, we, we want to we assume right. we're starting from the same space but if we overestimate that then we're not going to understand how people can have different views right. or different perceptions so i think there's a push and pull dynamic going on here and i remember thinking i was reading the other day about a dinner at the vatican where the rebel leader from south sudan sat with the current president of south sudan and the pope and a couple of other people yeah. and they, they ate in silence and I was wondering why 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 did they eat in silence haven't they got a lot to talk about yeah. shouldn't they get going <laughs> and I mean there may have been many reasons why they did this but it struck me one reason might be that if they just sit there in a room and eat then that provides a, a shared perceptual reality that they're likely to have more in common once they start talking right they're going to start going off that their individual perceptual worlds are going to start diverging are going to be harder to keep them in register so i just thought maybe whether that's strategically planned or whether it's happening at all i don't know but i thought well maybe that's a nice thought maybe give people a shared perceptual reality by preventing them from talking for a little while (laughs) gives you a stable platform to build on that's nice it makes me think of what happens on a silent retreat as well and there's a sense of community that can happen just from being in silence with yeah no that, that's people. right i mean i must admit i find that the silence is unusual i'm not used to it but i really love them at breakfast because i just hate people talking to me at breakfast anyway <laughs> so this is like paradise when yeah. you've got all these people it's breakfast silence, silence. It's wonderful it's very unusual but yeah. yeah the last thing i would just love to get your input on or advice i think that you're one of the most skillful communicators and translators of this kind of complicated science for public audience and and non-academics. And so I'm just wondering your experience in that world as a communicator and um, if you have advice to give to other academics about how they can make their work more accessible. That's a very good question. And I guess the first thing that comes to mind about that is that 
it's really not that everybody needs to do this. You know, I think it's often becoming a bit like this expectation that everybody in science needs to also get up on stage and shout mm -hmm. about what they do. And it's, some people should do that, but not everybody has to do that. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's perfectly fine if that's really not your, your cup of tea. Um, I do it. I started doing it, you know, in, in pubs and small places in, in Brighton. And I just really enjoyed it. And mm -hmm. I think it's fortunate because I was talking about consciousness and everybody's interested in consciousness. Right. So it's an easy sell. <laughs> you, can, uh, you can get people to come and, and engage quite, quite easily. So that, yeah. that's fortunate. Yeah. But I've yeah, I've done progressively more of this. I'm not, never sure how to describe it. It's not communication. It's not this kind of one-way dissemination of right. knowledge from the all-powerful <laughs> scientists to the unignorant <laughs> public. Not at all. Sure. You know, it's, it's much more bidirectional in its outreach, engagement, all, all, these, all these ideas. It is becoming, I think, more important in general, and rightly so, uh, not only because you know, we get funded by governments usually so there's a responsibility, but because I think it's part of the dialogue that we as society should be having. The voices of scientists mm -hmm. should be more prominent within a lot of the, the current uh, political mm -hmm. debates in, in society. It's something useful to say. Even the scientific method itself is sort of not as well understood generally as, as it could be. And I think there's actually public engagement about scientific method yes would be more valuable than anything else right right, right. now. So m the advice is really, if you enjoy it, uh, do it. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't depend on you being an extrovert, I don't think. I mean, it's, it, it's a distinctive thing. I think some extroverts hate it, some introverts mm -hmm. love it. Um, in a way, it's, it's, it's a chance to tell people about what you're excited about. Yeah. And the other thing is it, it, it does take a lot of work. It's like anything, like it's a, it's a skill. It takes practice. I'm still learning. I've been lucky to have a lot of opportunities to get informally trained. Um, not had formal training, but informal feedback. Uh, and you just learn through repeated partial successes and partial failures what lands and, and, and what doesn't land. And the other final thing I'd say about this is that I've also learned an awful lot because one of the great benefits of a wider engagement about your ideas is you come into contact with people you wouldn't otherwise come into contact with right. who will talk to you about their work, who will talk to you about how their work interacts with, with what you've been saying. And you'll find yourself thinking about your own work in a new way as a result. Um, and the final, final thing I'll say <laughs> is that it's nice to have impact. You know, it's, it's yeah. great. If, if you write a, a paper, that's brilliant. And if it's a, if it's a fundamentally important paper, that's amazingly brilliant. Uh, but when you can crystallize your ideas into a, into a form and, and you can get them out to a larger variety of people who can digest them, uh, then that can be extremely rewarding and satisfying. Great. I think that's a wonderful place to leave it. So thank you so much for taking your time today and joining us. Thank you. It's been great to chat. This episode was edited and produced by me and Phil Walker. Music on the show is from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal. Show notes and resources for this and other episodes can be found at podcast.mindandlife.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes and share it with a friend. If something in this conversation sparked insight for you, we'd love to know about it. 
You can send an email or voice memo to podcast at mindandlife.org. Mind and Life is a production of the Mind and Life Institute. Visit us at mindandlife.org where you can learn more about how we bridge science and contemplative wisdom to foster insight and inspire action. There you can also support our work, including this podcast. <laughs>